Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn, and you are listening to Rethinking EDU. We so appreciate you being here with us for this episode. We're super pumped because we've got three amazing folks on our on our show um, this evening to talk about uh, rural education networks. And we're going to introduce them in a quick second, but I want to check in with my co-hosts first, Matt, Julie, Janine. Let's start with Janine. Janine, how are you doing tonight? Hey, uh, great, great. We had a, an awesome day earlier with uh, another incubator experience. So um, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> me too, for sure. Matt, what about you? How are you feeling? I got to ditto that and uh, excited to talk more with you guys and our, and our special guests tonight. Awesome. Yeah, and as I mentioned earlier, um, we've got three guests from various uh, rural school organizations, and I want to just introduce them one by one and give them a chance to kind of talk about what their organization is um, really briefly and uh, start to give us a sense of kind of who's on the pod for this evening. Um, let's start with uh, Gary Funk. So Gary, you are you are calling in with us from Wisconsin and your work is with the Rural School Collaborative. Could you give us like the 30 second version of what the Rural School Collaborative is all about? And thanks so much for having us on. I get to be with two of my favorite people, Haley Winkleman and Alan Pratt. You're gonna meet them. and. Uh, it's, it's great to share our message and just real succinctly, the Rural Schools Collaborative is really committed to strengthening the bonds between schools and communities. And we are a modest national organization with nine regional hubs. And, and we really try to, to work in areas such as philanthropy, uh, school partnerships, place-based education, and get people to think otherwise uh, about what schools can mean to communities and uh, just appreciate the opportunity to visit with you all. And thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Gary. I realized that I've been saying rural school collaborative. I should be saying rural schools collaborative uh, with a little S at the end of the schools. I got to make sure to check my check my name there. <laughs> um, let's uh, let's chat with Haley Winkleman for a quick second. Haley, you're part of the I am a rural teacher campaign. Um, and you're chatting with us from Southern Illinois in your lovely uh, small town. You want to just give us a 30-second um, introduction to, uh, to your organization? Yeah, absolutely. So I also work with the Association of Illinois Rural and Small Schools, which is the only rural schools advocacy group in Illinois. And the I'm a Rural Teacher Project is a collaboration between Rural Schools Collaborative and NREA, which you'll hear Alan speak for them in a second. And so I kind of facilitate the NREA side more. We work a lot with data and advocacy and trying to reach the right people with the right information. Cool. That sounds awesome. And you just mentioned Alan Pratt, um, who's our third guest for the evening. Alan, you are part of the National Rural Education Association, NREA. Um, how's it going? And tell us a little bit about NREA. First of all, thanks for having me on tonight, and uh, I'm excited to be on with two great folks. Uh, Gary is, has been a, a good friend to me and, and done a lot of great things in rural education. Haley's very modest. Haley is unbelievable what she does for Rural Schools Collaborative. I'm a rural teacher and also NREA. Um, NREA, we, we have 42 state affiliates, and we have members in all 50 states, and, and our purpose really is to bring the legislative and the other areas of service to our rural school uh, state affiliates or rural school communities. Uh, a little bit different than what Gary and them do in their work, but very similar. And that's why we, uh, I believe, good working partners and trying to do some things to help the rural areas across the country. Super cool. I really, before chatting with you all and just hearing about all of that work that you guys are doing, um, had no idea that this network and 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 really important work um, supporting rural schools and teachers and students is happening. So I really appreciate this opportunity and for you all to kind of bring this to to light for me. So that's that's really awesome. Um, I would love to hear if you could kind of give us a sense of how your three different organizations kind of work together to do some of the things that you're trying to do. And any of the any of the three of you can chime in on this question. 
um, whoever thinks that they can capture it the best. Um, I can speak from more of the new media side of things. So a very big part of modern day advocacy is social media. And our organizations really do support each other by sharing each other's posts, leaving comments on posts, and also forwarding them to who we think needs to see them. Social media advocacy is really a part of our work in a way that some people might not expect because we do have the digital divide, as we call it. But that, I think, makes it even more important that we are connecting with people any way we can. Mm. Um, a lot of us live five or six hours away from each other. So connecting through social media, sending an email, a phone call, a Zoom meeting, I think that really is how we communicate best right now and helps us do our work and support each other. Yeah, it's super interesting, Haley, what you're talking about. As you described it, the new media platform is a really important way for educators to connect. And I can see how a tool like Twitter or something like that could be even more important for folks that are five or six hours away, like you're describing. Jump in on that. And uh, I think Haley's comments are, are worthwhile in the sense that we really do have to, I think, build a much stronger social media platform uh, not just for the connectivity, but but in the sense of giving voice. And and we were very fortunate to receive a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that brought all of us together. Uh, we had a great working relationship with National Rural Education Association and Alan, his colleagues, previously. But but the Gates grant has really elevated our work and allowed us to promote "I Am a Rural Teacher," which is a campaign that essentially tries to to build narrative about. The, the role of rural teachers, the importance of rural teachers, what they mean to economic development, and then to create messages with Allen's affiliates that, uh, you know, influence policy with decision makers. And, you know, Alan, I think you can you can talk more on that. And um, we've just appreciated the chance to uh, to do that. And again, thanks to the Gates Foundation. Yeah, on our end, I, I think, you know, Haley does a great job and the, the team from Rural Schools Collaborative with the social media aspect, social media side. Uh, Gary's correct on the, the aspect of telling stories and giving a, a name and a face to those stories of rural teachers across America. It's powerful for us moving forward now and then pre-COVID and post-COVID is the fact of um, you put a, a face and a story to something um, that the legislator may be voting on either at the state level or the federal level, it's a little bit different and it puts a little ownership and understanding of what's going on. And I think that's the key for this moving forward. Um, I was on a webinar, did a webinar with a group and uh, shared stories from the I'm a Rural Teacher um, um, site and just went through the COVID responses and all that good stuff. and. Uh, it's amazing how much the response to uh, me not throwing data up on the slides and me actually putting stories up and talking through this process. So uh, that, that, I think that's powerful. The one other thing I wanted to say about our social media advocacy, and we mentioned this in a couple of our videos where we're trying to get people to submit and saying, why should you care? Why should you share your story? Almost every single person who works as a as a representative a local government official will have a Twitter account or a Facebook page. And they really like seeing that engagement and they want to respond to you. And it's a channel that maybe people don't think about because it's not an official channel, but that makes it more casual and you can really talk with people that way and get their opinions in a way that policymakers really value. So I think that's another really important aspect of our work. Super interesting, everything you guys have been sharing. I know, Matt, you uh, had some questions that you wanted to kind of toss out there. Get in there. Yeah, we want to uh, ask a couple questions about the I Am a Rural Teacher campaign. I'm going to direct these questions to you, Haley. But if uh, Alan or Gary, you want, uh, you have some insight, you want to chime in, please uh, do that. But it just sort of helps when we have a lot of people on the on the podcast. Can Haley, can you tell us a little bit more specifically, just for our listeners that maybe have never heard of I Am a Rural uh, Teacher campaign, can you tell us what that is? Absolutely. Uh, so I Am a Rural Teacher is a national advocacy campaign. As Gary mentioned, we are graciously funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And we started out with the goal 
of collecting 65 teacher-submitted perspectives. One can send in their story to us, we evaluate it and share it. And then 10 deep dive feature stories where my two colleagues, Julia Levine and Liliana Quello, were traveling across the country, visiting these areas and getting incredible photographs, making a produced video. And when COVID hit, that stopped, <laughs> unfortunately. And so we're kind of tailoring now to how do we do this advocacy work when we can't have feet on the ground, so to speak. And so I would say the long and short of it is we collect those stories and then we tailor how we place those stories so that we can impact policy, so we can impact people's opinion of rural areas. So we have three main story types that we're looking for, people, policy and places why do you live somewhere that's rural what is the advantage of that um people what is the community like rural as family is something we say a lot rural as family um tell us what that means to you and then policy what can policymakers be doing that would help rural areas you know a lot of them focus on urban areas and those policies aren't always necessarily the same to impact rural areas so in mid-March, I see the comment down there, so it's kind of leading me to keep talking here. Uh, in mid-March, I kind of came to the group and said, hey, schools are closing and maybe people want to talk about that. So we started what we call the COVID-19 Rural Community Impact Project within our campaign and basically said, Tell us how your community is responding. Tell us how it's affecting rural. Tell us about your internet access issues. Do you live in a rural area that's connected? Do you have kids that are living 50 miles away that had to ride the bus to school and now they can't do school anymore because they don't have internet at their house? Um, so we have a lot of things like that that we were collecting and saying, what can we do? And I know several people I've spoken with did not realize either in some areas how good the access really is or in some areas that there's literally no access. Uh, so one story that we got that really impacted me is someone in Texas said, we don't even know where some of our kids are because they went on spring break. Maybe they stayed with an aunt or an uncle or a grandmother or a friend. They didn't come home. We can't call the house. They don't have a phone. We can't connect to the internet to email them. We don't even know where they are. We haven't seen them since the school's closed. And that just blew me away. <laughs> I couldn't even believe what I was hearing. And so we have stories like that. And then we have stories like in North Dakota, 98% of them, the students there have an internet access solution of some kind. And you wouldn't think that in North Dakota, but we've seen all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Cause my first, uh, you know, my first look at, you know, I'm a rural teacher campaign. It seems on the, on the face that it's a recruitment effort, but, but it's much more than that. I, I think that is perceptive. The, the campaign certainly has teacher recruitment uh, as well as advocacy. And one of the issues that we face in rural America, and this is something that I think folks don't clearly is there's this looming, growing rural teacher shortage. And that's it's really a tough issue in rural places. I think the teacher shortage impacts all of our communities, suburban and urban, but it's really problematic in rural because it's a struggle to recruit bright young folks into rural places. And so I think Haley and, and her colleagues have done a wonderful job of melding the recruitment aspect with, I think, a very timely and, and targeted approach to giving voice on, on different pertinent advocacy issues. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Thanks, Gary, for, for pointing that out. It's really exciting to hear about the policy work and getting the stories out. Um, you know, and as you're thinking about this campaign, um, just a follow-up question, um, maybe you could comment briefly on what have been some pleasant surprises and then also 
what are what are some plans uh, for the future as as you're thinking about this campaign moving into you know September's on the doorstep? On, on our end, uh, within REA, it's a it's a it's started off slowly with our state affiliates working with the uh, Amarillo Teacher Campaign and Project, but now I'm getting receiving outreach from our states. And hey, when's our state coming up to be featured in our 50 states in 50 weeks, 50 rural states in 50 weeks? And what can we do to add to the uh, data set that you're putting on the graphics and sharing on social media? And can we get stories out? So I, I noticed we had some outreach from North Carolina about two weeks ago, and I think Haley shared a North Carolina story today. So you can kind of see the aspect of that work as it's moving forward. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot of uh, positives to that. Um, I, I will tell you on one note on the uh, policy and advocacy side, I've had several uh, uh, senators in their office reach out and and uh, mention I am a rural teacher campaign. So that message is getting to their offices as well, which I think is, is powerful. Yeah, that's great. Um, so Gary, I was wondering, you know, with the Rural Schools Collaborative, you know, I saw that one of your signature initiatives is, um, what is it called, a place-based network. And, you know, we recently start, talked with uh, Tom Vanderark, you know, a few episodes back, and he was talking briefly about this, but I'd love to hear more about it. Um, I do work in a school that does quite a lot of place-based learning, so I'm interested to hear how RSC connects students to the communities. Thanks. That is a big part of our mission, and I think that what's interesting is that we've been talking about narrative and it is, and I think particularly for the last half century and Alan and I do span into previous centuries, by the way. So, and I, <laughs> I you know, in, in rural America, that, in America, that means we're long, we're long of tooth. Uh, Haley is not, but um, and, and it's, it's with national rural narrative that, that needs to be reimagined and we need a new story. Uh, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And uh, so I think that, that if we're serious about addressing teacher recruitment and strengthening advocacy and for folks to recognize that public education is essential to strong rural economies, we, we have to, to build on that, on that narrative. And we believe that place-based education is a wonderful way to do that because what place-based learning does is it connects the school to the community and engages folks in the community and it gives young students a chance to learn about the history and the art and the culture of their community and celebrate it and brag about it which we think is good and so the place network is based on place-based learning principles and it's actually a project of the Teton science schools which they're out of Wyoming and Jackson and it's dedicated to providing professional development for teachers and also involving students in this network of growing number of schools that share what they're doing with place-based education and then create community goals that, that are embedded you know, into the learning process. So it's a really exciting venture and uh, it's something that we've been very fortunate to get involved in and the network just started last year. It's already up to 15 schools we're talking with another dozen schools in three or four different states, and we actually have some funding for it. So that's kind of nice in this era. So yeah, thanks for a chance to talk about that. And I think all this stuff weaves together seamlessly, and, and it sort of connects the I am a rural teacher to the actual on the ground work. Janine, sounds like you and Julie got to get involved if possible. Sounds like a perfect match for what you all are doing. Oh, I must have to talk later. <laughs> Maybe you can speak a little bit about the importance of really being able to uh, make those community connections for the rural schools. Like, why why is it so important in the rural communities there? If I, there are two ways I'm kind of thinking you can answer that. Uh, one way is community to school. Um, so schools are not just schools, especially in rural communities. They're community centers. So there are a lot of things that happen there that are not school things in air quotes there. Um, so for example, we have a local theater group in my town and we use the school as our space. Um, or there are fundraisers that are held at the school and that's the space for it. Um, so I think connecting community to the school is important because it's sort of a reciprocal relationship. 
But I also think that communities to other communities is a way you can answer that. So someone might say, I'm a rural teacher and my community is unique and it's different. And I have these struggles that other people might not understand. But what I have seen in the over 80 stories we've collected is that a lot of rural communities across the country have a lot of the same problems and they share a lot of the same pride in being rural. I love my rural family. I love my community. I love the history of my town. So we have a lot of overlap between communities as well. And I'm not sure if I answered the question. So no, that's, that, no, that's great. I, I love I love that you pointed out, you know, the communities needing to connect with the other communities too. I think that that's probably uh, definitely a key, <laughs> key part of the solution there. Yeah, I would add that there's a unique thing that I'm picking up that you're saying about the importance of space in connection to the school. So school becomes a gathering space for people. It becomes an integral part of their life, much more than like a just sort of transactional institution that school can sort of end up with for many students. Um, I live in Philadelphia proper, and I know that there's lots of students that just sort of like come and go to their school every day and families that sort of just have their kids go to school and maybe they don't interact with the kids' school that much. But Haley, what you're suggesting is that particularly in rural communities um, where the school itself is a resource hub for families in a really important way and also for all the individuals that are interacting there. So whether it's a theater group or a Boy Scout or Girl Scout club or you know anything along those lines. Absolutely. And I think that we have seen that impact of schools as a resource center during this COVID hit more than ever. Thousands and thousands of families are being provided food by these schools. They're being given technology so they can still do their classes. We are seeing so much provision from our schools the community so that they can continue to function through all this craziness. And so I think you're absolutely right in saying that. Alan, I know we've got some policy wonks kind of listening to this podcast, at least I hope that we do. And I'm wondering if you can kind of give us a sense of some of the policy work that NREA is engaged in right now. Oh, I will not. Uh, since we're all in education, we can handle acronyms. There's about 9,000 on, on Capitol Hill that we deal with. Um, so I won't throw those out, but a lot of our work is on the advocacy side and also the legislative side. And the large majority of my day to, uh, around uh, uh, Zoom calls around um, um, infrastructure bill that was passed on the outside and also more funding through uh, either a COVID five or six, I think we're in phase five or six of funding that could come out to help and support uh, rural schools and schools in general. Um, you know, I think the biggest push, uh, and I'll be honest with you, my phone and my calendar filled up when the White House did the reopening, um, I guess, summit or meeting last week. Since that time frame, I have been um nonstop about reopening and questions and answers. And one of the things we did um, the first of this month is we connected rural principals from Pennsylvania and Kansas, rural principals in Australia. And uh, what we did was try to, we did a Zoom call and just did a Q&A session on what it looked like to close, what it looked like to open, how did you support your teachers, and then what would you not do again from the Australian side? And then we had the same thing from the U.S. side. Um, I'll, I will tell you, and I'll reiterate Haley's point, rural communities are very similar in the challenges that people are facing. Uh, it's the same across the uh, many, many time zones. Uh, Australia is battling connectivity issues, obviously battling the same thing with uh, uh, poverty. They're also bat battling um, you know, some uh, inequities. Uh, racial inequities and other things that we deal with here in our country. And it's interesting to get their perspective. Um, the big difference for us is what we deal with is that we're locally controlled. Your local school board controls a lot of what happens. Uh, and I think that's a big play for rural because a lot of times we kind of just stay in our silo in rural communities and we don't 
messaging out the way we need to. I, that's why I think the work that we're doing and really Haley and Gary pushing this forward with I'm Real Teacher is vital to get those stories out. And I'm sure that advocacy work is even more important as we're thinking about opening schools here in 40 or 50 days, right? Yeah, and the big thing for us is you're you're looking at it from a sense of, um, you know, we believe there's going to be rolling openings and rolling or pauses in instruction or face-to-face. And I, I think our, our approach is safety first, obviously. But on the, And that same approach when they're asking us to open, we need funding to make sure our buildings are safe and our students are healthy. And another part of this is, you know, a lot of times in rural communities, we have an aging teacher population. So they're going to be at risk or vulnerable to, you know, COVID or other issues. So we have to keep that in mind as well. So uh, there's a lot of estimates how much money it's going to take. Uh, we're, we're pushing that, obviously, that we want to bring people together and bring our rural superintendents together to share ideas. You know, there's going to be areas within two hours of where I live. They're going to open up in next week or the week after. And we know there's areas that are going to push back into September. I think it's going to be those local decisions and all that stuff kind of going on. It's going to be really, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it's all handled and to see how districts prepare for a pause or a, a, uh, a hybrid approach as we move forward. Sounds like there's a lot to consider and that's certainly true for all of us, but what would you say are maybe your tops, top things to consider, particularly for rural schools? I mean, I mean, I'll quickly answer. I think obviously we always look at teacher shortage being a major issue. We look at rural broadband and connectivity issues being a major issue as well. And and a lot of people don't understand. You know, you talk. We talked about the aging population, but the population of our t- teachers and the safety and well-being of those teachers is vital. But the the condition of our buildings, the infrastructure, and the infrastructure of the HVA system that are we going to be able to have a clean, healthy air circulation, which we're need, which is much needed. So I'll let Haley and Gary talk about that as well. Jump in and say something about the broadband infrastructure, and I really applaud. The work that Alan and his colleagues have, have done on that, because the truth of the matter is, uh, that is one of the most singularly important things that we can do for rural America. Not only will it address some of the weaknesses that have certainly been exposed by COVID, uh, I think Haley pointed that out some with some of the stories we, we've received, but in addition, it really does give an opportunity to level the economic playing field. And, and if we're serious about revitalizing rural America, we're going to have to have that digital infrastructure. Thirdly, and this is a key point, uh, widespread national broadband is, is going to be essential if we're going to achieve carbon neutrality. And rural communities are going to be stronger when we achieve our carbon neutrality. And, and so all these things work together. And if, it's, if you can go to a lot of really smart people, folks a lot smarter than me, And the synergy point on so many things is that broadband infrastructure. Um, I think that the connectivity issue is always something that comes up again and again in articles, in Facebook posts, in this and that and the other. But I think another angle that hasn't been brought up yet is tech literacy. Um, so because in a lot of places that are rural, we don't have that access. We don't know what to do with access, if that makes sense. That might not be a good way of saying it. Um, so like if we say, okay, your school is now completely online. Okay, well, I don't have internet in my house. I don't know how to connect to the internet except for through my phone, through an app. Um, I can get on Facebook or Twitter, but how do I do my school that way? What's Zoom? What is this? And maybe they have to go to a library for that, but they're wanting us to shelter in place. And so there are a lot of barriers that maybe people don't consider just from not having asked, excuse me. There are a lot of things people don't consider from not having access at a basic level that then kind of fans out into other issues. Um, where can I apply to college? Where can I apply to a job if I'm not able to get on the internet and apply? Um, some places do still take paper applications, but where can I get them, especially when everything is closed? 
So I think that there are a lot of things about that access issue that are sort of butterfly effect impacted. I wouldn't even know where to get a paper application for basically anything right now. <laughs> I haven't, right. Had, a, That's what I haven't I'm had a printer at home for three or four years. Uh, we just got one like right before COVID and um, it's just such a, it's, it's such a really critical point that just because you have access to the, in, to the internet doesn't mean you know how to use that access doesn't mean you know how to use the tools that are being presented to you. And then also, I think another, you know, maybe point that's coming up here for me is that if I do have access to the internet, maybe for the first time ever at my home, what am I going to be using that for? You know, social media is designed to lure you in and grab your attention for hours on end. I can personally attest to the hours on end I spend uh, surfing dog photos on my dog Instagram, right? <laughs> and you're all of a sudden going to give this tool to maybe a bunch of families or students that they're like, "Whoa, what, what, uh, what do I do with this?" And that literacy also has to be part of that. And I'm not saying, and I think some people may misconstrue what I'm saying as like those yokels they don't know how to use a computer, and that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying if you've ever had that exposure and you're just thrust into it, it's sink or swim. And just from the stress of something like a pandemic, and now you're being forced to do school online and your parents work full time. And so you're home alone doing school. It's a lot for a kid. Um, yeah, we, we've been having conversations with our students very directly and actively that say when you're doing a Zoom uh, experience for school, like where is your phone in that situation so you're not distracted by it? And it's that level of conversation that we need to be preparing to have with students to increase mindfulness around um, technology usage, increase well-being around technology usage. I think all of that is really critical, and I'm I'm glad you brought it up, Haley. I'll also follow up with sort of a personal note. Um, so my degree is actually in design and school websites are some of the worst websites I've ever seen. So if I were oh, a no. parent and I was trying to figure out where do I go to get my kids homework or where do I go to call this number or where do I go? Even if you are relatively tech literate, you go on this website and you're just lost. Um, I've done some research on school websites over the past few months to be able to tag them on Facebook or Instagram when we post or just to find an email for a teacher. And I found a website that I kid you not was a blank white page with Times New Roman font. Oh my. And there were no pictures and there were no links. And it was just text information on this school website in the middle of a pandemic. I'm like, what do I, where do I get my stuff? Where do I pick up? Uh, a lot of schools are doing printout packets because of the access issue. Where do I pick up my packet? What day do I drop it off? No social media presence, no good website. And I think that there's a huge gap there because we're behind on the access. We're also behind on not only the literacy, but the efficacy, like the efficiency. How do I streamline this website to get the information to the people that need it? And so that's my kind of soapbox as a designer. Um, that these websites are just, they need help. They need a service. They need a connection. You know, you can't do, can't do these things without money, but they don't have money. And now the money is going to giving all the kids Chromebooks so they can do their homework during the closure. And the website is not always the first thing that comes to mind. But it is important. And so there are a lot of small that from this tech gap that sort of fall to the wayside. And you're, you're, you're positive that it's not like a brutalist uh, choice that they're making, right? Like times your Roman blank um, background. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you the truth. I'll tell you the truth. 90% of them are the same template. The colors changed or not even the colors change. And a lot of them have a little box that says contact. And when you click on it, gives you like an email address that you can then click to email. 
um, doesn't have the school address, doesn't have a phone number. Because I was wanting to reach out to a few schools and say, hey, we haven't had any stories from blah, blah, blah state. Um, I wanted to reach out and see if any of your teachers would like to submit a story. And there was no phone number. And the email was some kind of info at carmyschools.org or something. Um, so there's no way to efficiently contact the school either. Gary and Alan, if y'all could weigh in here. You know, I think that there might be a lot of teachers that are listening to this that are um, that teach in suburban schools, that maybe are school leaders in urban schools, and that maybe have a vision or an understanding of what they think rural schools and rural education kind of looks like, um, what some of the issues that rural schools are facing. I would love to hear from either of you about maybe like one major misconception that, um, and I think Alan is being, <laughs> whichever one of you wants to go first, but one major misconception that education professionals typically have about rural schools. Okay, since I guess Gary has put me on the panel here to, um, I, I, th I think the, I think, a misconception is that there sometimes there may not be the same level of instruction and education levels at a rural school. And some may think the innovation or the innovative process of students is not the same where that's not true. Um, I, I think there are inequities and there's, there's things that we definitely battle and there's a lot of different stereotypes that probably come to mind, but, um, you know, I would put our students up against any students in America. Uh, I think we hold our own. The options that folks about rural schools, I think particularly in some parts of the country, is that rural places and rural students you know, all look alike, that they're the same. And, and the fact, one of the things that's been hard, I think, about building a sense of rurality is there is such tremendous diversity in, in rural places and rural regions, and both in terms of histories and in economies and, and, and ethnic diversity. And I, I think that's something to be celebrated. And it's a richness that, that I think we're trying to address with the I'm a Rural Teacher Program. And I know Alan's organization is, is looking at it. And I think when people understand that, they, they, they sort of look at things through a different lens. It's not all uh, American Gothic, right, in Iowa. And, uh, or it's not all, uh, you know, the Pennsylvania Dutch. Uh, you know what I'm saying, these sort of bucolic, agrarian types of images that folks have. Uh, there's some of that, but it's, it's so much more than that. And, and, and actually, I think that's, that's exciting. And I think we, it comes back to, to building narrative. And, and I think in the long run, that will be healthy um, for what we know the future is going to be and needs to be. So we're going to get into the kind of reflection portion of the pod where we hear a little bit from everybody. Kind of what is this conversation making you think or rethink about education? What's coming up for you? Co-hosts. Let's start off with us. And then, of course, Alan, Gary, and Haley, you're more than welcome to share your thoughts as well. Yeah, for me, this, is, uh, this has been such a great um, conversation. And it's been, it's been wonderful to, to really sit back and learn from things that you have going on. And one thing that jumps out to me is your focus on place-based uh, learning. And I think that is so important. And I've been hearing it mentioned more and more in in schools around me you know a context for our learning um within the place that we live and and i think that's so important and and i think that we um other schools as they're seeking to to utilize place-based learning i think we can learn a lot um from rural schools that that have been doing this and um and yeah, you have experience with it. And, and I think it's a time for us to collaborate um, different types of schools together and learn from each other. And I think that's something that, that I want to learn um, more from. And I think that we can learn that from you. So yeah, I'm excited about that. Yeah, I've really have appreciated this conversation and just how it's brought to light some of the 
issues um, that these rural schools are struggling with. And I think that advocacy is really needed. Um, you know, if, if the people who are making the decisions are unaware of what the real issues are that are impacting schools, we can't we can't make any changes then. You know, we're we're stuck. Um, so I appreciate that you guys really are working as change agents here and, um, you know, through your, your social media, you know, getting, getting the word out and, um, making, making the people that are making the decisions aware, <laughs> um, that's, that's important So appreciate that. So I think that's something that's really important. Uh, first of all, I'm really grateful that we've been able to talk about these subjects with you all. Um, that's what we do. We are trying to spread awareness and from that awareness build advocacy. And so thank you so much for having us all here to talk about what we do and what we want to happen. Um, my follow-up to that would be, yes, we've talked about a lot of issues that rural schools have, but another really important aspect of our work is the benefits that you have in a rural area. We call it the rural advantage. I think Dave Ardry might have coined that. He seems to think he did, at least. I'm not sure. Uh, but the rural advantage is basically there's this beautiful nature where you live, your communities, your family, everyone supports you. You know, it's cheap to live there. That one's maybe not as sweet, but it's true. Um, we've had several stories where people say, one that comes to mind, we had from Vincent's, Indiana, super tiny town. It's actually near where I live. And they said, we have this great history here. You know, we were the very first to do this. We were the very first to do this. Uh, we were the very first. It's a history of firsts is how we titled it. And it's this small town that you wouldn't think anything of. And maybe the people that live there don't appreciate all the time, but it is a really cool, unique place. Um, so I'm, I'm prattling on a little bit. So if Gary and Alan want to hop in. Uh, first of all, thank you for allowing us to be on. And, and it's, been, it's been an honor and I'm humbled um, by the uh, response and the, the kind compliments and comments about our work. Um, for me, the reflection is um, similar to what Haley was talking about is that uh, it's, it's really fun for uh, us to share stories and fun for us to uh, raise awareness on issues. But it's also fun to see a, a light bulb kind of go off with someone and say, oh yeah, I see the similarities. And and that's one of the things I think if we're talking to teachers that are in urban or, rural, uh, or uh, suburban settings, we advocate for urban uh, issues and suburban issues as well when they align to what we're doing and then vice versa. So we have a lot of urban school districts that fight for some of the stuff we're do we're wanting to do legislatively. So it's uh, interesting how we're very similar and uh, also so different. Thanks for the chance to visit. And I think that, well, I guess what I would like folks to understand, and I think all this conversation really comes to this point, is that it's going to be difficult to have a thriving rural landscape with, without strong public schools. And we're not going to have strong public schools unless we can recruit and prepare and place innovative, enthusiastic, and caring young teachers. And, and that's going to take a national effort to do that. And I think NREA is, is doing some wonderful work in, in that regard. And I think if our democracy is, is going to be revived, and I think it needs to be revived, it's got to be centered on, on public schools and public education. And I think in rural regions, that kind of focus is going to allow us to have better discussions on a lot of things than we've been having. So it, I, I think it's, it, it truly is a focal point of improving America and, and providing more equitable opportunities with, with play in places that have largely been forgotten often. So um, thanks for a chance. To, to share on this and uh, thanks for you guys, you know, and what you do, right? This good work and being teachers and all that kind of stuff. I think that's, uh, we're honored to, to visit with y'all. Thanks, Gary. We really appreciate that. So my reflection on this conversation is really around the importance of storytelling. And we've shared some really terrific stories this evening, stories about our work, and y'all have highlighted um, 
some really important aspects of, of, of the work that you're doing. And I have often thought about um, the important aspect of a school in general, highlighting the work of its students and teachers, because as many of you know, um, the work of teaching and learning within the school building is a little bit of a veiled experience, right? Even when parents come in to visit the school or when professionals come and visit the school, there's sort of like some dog and pony action going on, right? And a lot of that happens to the detriment of the school because some of the hardest work and parents are experiencing this right now. Some of the hardest work of being a, a teacher in any school is, is like, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversation, trying to get kids to come to a new realization. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm sort of preaching to the choir here, but you all know what I'm saying. Teaching is not an easy activity. Um, it's not an easy art. It's not an easy science, whatever, whatever term you want to use for it. And I'm reminded in this conversation that it's it's really important for any school, whether it is a rural school, an urban school, a suburban school, an independent school, a you know charter school, what have you, to highlight the stories of its students and its community in whatever way it possibly can. And Haley, your work in collecting uh, stories and um, and profiles of teachers and school communities, I think is really critical. And it's something that we can really uh, wrap our head around as, a, as an education community as a whole to kind of raise up the, the stories of our young people and their learning challenges and their learning successes and the beautiful work that teachers around the country are doing. I think that we could really dramatically alter the understanding of what happens in school um, on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's my little soapbox here. We're moving into the last um, section of the pod, which is called plugs, where everybody gets to share something that they would like to plug. I'll start. I've been redoing the theme music to our podcast using an online music maker called BandLab. So if you go to bandlab.com, it gives you some like neat little um, drum kit options and allows you to use your uh, keyboard to play some musical instruments and you can do some recording in there. It's super fun. I've already made a first track that is pretty terrible, but um, you know, Hopefully we'll get a we'll get some new music for our pod in the future. Matt, what about you? Yeah, to keep with the story theme, um, I've been reading a lot of good fiction books. So uh, fiction books are so important, and uh, the one that I've read recently is American Dirt by Janine Cummings. Cummins, and uh, it's just a powerful story that ties into a lot of things that are going around in the world today. But it's just a wonderful story as well. Awesome, Janine. What do you want to plug? Okay, I I don't have a story theme. I'm sorry, but. Um... <laughs> I don't Jeez. think I plugged this before, but I thought it would be good timing with all the digital stuff going around. Um, a website called commonsense.org. Um, they actually have uh, tabs for educators and they also have tabs for parents. Uh, for educators, though, it focuses on, yeah, there's all sorts of lesson plans that you can get. They focus on like digital citizenship. Uh, they also provide ed tech reviews. So if you're looking at, you know, planning for September and trying to see the the latest and greatest tech things that are out there. Uh, they, they actually provide you with some reviews. They also offer professional development and advice. Um, and, and they also incorporate like a lot of different character building type concepts in there as well. Uh, it's just a, a really neat resource that both educators and parents can use for, for digital media. Awesome. Gary, what about you? What would you like to plug? It may seem obtuse, but under the broad category of story, rural, I think everyone should check out the two stories that are out there, one is a podcast from Atlanta Magazine, Atlantic Magazine, and the other is a film about Pleistocene Park in Russia. It's just one of the most fascinating uh, examples of how a small group of folks can impact learning and impact the world. It is the craziest thing. And it's just, yeah, it's Pleistocene. I think that's how you say it. Pleistocene Park. Check it out. Cool. Okay. Alan, what do you got for us? Audible. Um, since the COVID, <laughs> since the COVID, I've been through forty-one books since March. What? Oh my goodness! I listen all the time because I'm in my office and I can't talk to anyone or have any social, you know. Ad, ad. So I'm on the computer and I listen to books all the time. 
Uh, so it's a lot of history, but a lot of uh, right now I'm uh, going through uh, Dan Heath's uh, upstream and uh, he's going to be our keynote at our fall conference, virtual conference this year. So um, I'm just kind of going through his book and um, but a lot of history. Very good. I think the, the four of us are doctoral students right now. So reading yeah. <laughs> anything, your, your life, you know, yeah. uh, journal articles. Uh, your life not normal. That won't be normal for yeah, a while. Yeah. God bless you. Jump through the hoops. <laughs> Haley, what uh, what would you like to plug? Uh, the first thing I'd like to plug is while we do collect teacher stories, we also accept nominations. So if you have someone that you would like to celebrate, we'd love to hear that perspective as well. But for a more fun off-topic plug, I have watched and rewatched and rewatched Defunct Land on YouTube. It is a series, just this guy makes this incredible in-depth historical series about theme park attractions that no longer exist and why. Um, so he's talked about Disney attractions, he's talked about Six Flags, he's talked about, uh, what is it called in Kansas City? There's one, Worlds of Fun. Um, he did one that was on all of the Santa Claus parks that inevitably just were everywhere in the 50s and now they're not. So it's a very comprehensive series. He just did one on Coney Island. So for over 40 episodes, so please check it out. <laughs> I uh, just uh, I just searched it up on YouTube. I, this is a rabbit hole that I will never recover from. Great. Crazy. And he has such a good dry sense of humor. Like he just sneaks these little jokes in seamlessly and he just is very calm, very podcast voice. Got me through my last semester of college. <laughs> well, Haley, Gary, and Alan, we thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. We really appreciate your time, your insights all of your willingness to share about your work and, and about your lives. Um, thanks all you listeners out there for having listened to this episode. We are trying to release our episodes on a more regular basis now. So far, they've been either Tuesday or Wednesday releases. We're trying to move into just Tuesday releases moving forward. So keep checking back on Tuesday mornings and you should be able to get our most recent ep. Um, we have some really incredible guests uh, on the docket for our upcoming uh, continuation of our network series. And then we promise that we will eventually move out of talking about networks, although they're super cool and we get to talk to folks like Alan, Gary and Haley, and that's really fun. Um, but thanks for listening. We really appreciate your time and don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts. Mm -hmm.